The podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. And joining me today is writer June Martin. Thanks for coming on the show. June, do you feel safe despite the fact that you're talking to a woman? Hi, Kitty. That you're talking to a woman with harmful opinions about fan culture. Oh, don't worry. Every time I log on, I strap 10 harmful opinions to my body for my protection and the protection of others. (laughs) You've inoculated yourself to harmful opinions by spending enough time on the internet, reading bad opinions all day to the point where you're immune, I'm guessing. It's it's part of my body now. Yeah. So, a little background for those of you who are not terminally online, I recently got cancelled, hashtag cancelled, because I said publicly that I don't like fanfiction. Like, I don't like it aesthetically. Because of this, uh, I got several thousand people telling me to die for a couple of days. Uh, There were a bunch of really incompetent hacking attempts on my Twitter account. Someone tried to report me for hate speech. Uh, People tried to get me fired. Joke's on you. I'm in a union. You can't defeat me. A community of SFF writers who call themselves The Codex actually placed me on a list of known or suspected predators, basically comparing me to a literal rapist for disliking fanfiction. Like I molested their feelings with their opinions. They also accused me of being prejudiced while simultaneously making some accusations about me that are definitely not anti-Puerto Rican stereotypes, like that I'm a violent person who should be locked up, that I can't be trusted to function in society, that I am a sexual threat, that I'm too loud, that perhaps I am at risk of singing a song on a rooftop about how everything free in America for a small fee in America, smoke on your pipe and put that in. It's all very reasonable. It's all a very mature response that absolutely proves that fan fiction is for sensible people with good and normal brains. So June, despite this, you decided to risk exposure to my very dangerous opinions to come on and talk about how queerness is not a form of fandom. So June, why did you put yourself in such a mortal peril? Ah, well, two reasons. One, at this point, you can't have a good time on a weeknight without putting yourself in mortal peril. Uh, Two, (laughs) uh, I saw some people online when this was happening, talking about how not liking fanfic was queerphobic, and that made me really mad. Now, for the record, you are queer. You you have the right to discuss this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let, let me let me run down my list of queer credentials. Uh, I am a trans woman. I have been variously queer for an astounding number of years at this point. Mm. I have yeah. I have all the credentials you need. Right. Okay. So you you are yeah. you are a confirmed. <laughs> I am I am constantly doing queer stuff. Constantly. You're queering everything. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're next, drones. <laughs> oh no, someone already tried to queer drones and it didn't go so good. People got really mad. Uh, uh, I'll do, I, I, I can fix them. <laughs> nice. Okay. So... Before we get into a discussion of fandom, I, th- I feel like we need to define what fandom is. Because when I hear about people talking about fandom, fan fiction, fan works, fan art, etc., sometimes they use a definition that I think is very strangely vague. Like, I was accused of writing fan fiction because my story, The Fairy Egg, is about something that happened in real life. Which I think is very odd, because if something based on real life is fanfic that means your history textbook is fan fiction i guess and that yeah. seems 
that doesn't make sense to me. So beyond being interested in something or liking something, like what, how are we going to define fandom and fan, fan works? How are we going to define that? So yeah, ultimately we can't say that, oh, fandom has always existed because it is a, it is a historically specific mode of engaging with a media product. Like there is a key, there are key differences between engaging with your favorite cartoon which is something like owned by Nickelodeon, where that ca- the canon is decided by Nickelodeon, and engaging with something like the Bible, when you live in Christendom in like the 1500s, and that is the truth for you. So, yeah, I think fandom is. I would define fandom as the specific relation of engaging with a corporate or individually owned media product that. Okay. So the big thing you keep mentioning is the word owned. Yes. Like, how do we, how how are we defining owned? Because like, in a way, everybody sort of owns culture, right? Like, we're all engaging in it. We're, we're all part of it. But in another more accurate way, (laughs) when we're talking about culture today, there's a a very legal, official sense of ownership, intellectual property. Yeah, like, there are, we can all own culture, but there's a lot of us out there that will get sued if we start selling Bart Simpson t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think that aspect of it, of fandom and fan works, is something that people kind of don't discuss as much. That kind of ownership. Yeah, there's a cultural ownership, but legally there is a very official legal ownership. And the corporation owns stuff not not us intellectual property for there to be this specific thing called fandom fanfic fan works it's not the same as folklore because folklore is communally owned no specific person really owns like cat no specific person really owns this cat this cat owns me every day every time i try to record but no specific person owns like hansel and gretel it's in the public domain. Anyone can mess with it. It's public domain, and, and there are a zillion variations of it. Even, even, yeah, there's the Grimm's Brothers version, but that was just one version of many, many, many versions of the story that was being passed down through oral tradition. Yeah. So, like, folk, yeah, folk culture has this sort of communal aspect to it, but intellectual property and fan work, there's this legal hierarchy, and the intellectual property owner is above us in the hierarchy, which is an uncomfortable thing to think about. Yeah. Like a defining quality of folklore is that as these tales grow, they spin out into these multiple interpretations that go, that have either different emphases or even end differently. Um, And you can't actually say, oh no, this is the real version because no one actually has that right. And when, and communally, we just, we have a bunch of them and we, t- we end up telling our favorites and those become like the more accepted ones, but that's a ongoing storytelling process. Whereas Disney can say, this is the real Star Wars and there's nothing the rest of us can do about that. Right. And I mean, we might write a fan fiction about Star Wars or something, but the official movies, the official canon, what's on Wikipedia is going to be what the IP holder decides. It, yeah. And, and I know that feels a little like stressful to really think about. And a lot of people don't really like to think about it because like you're pouring so much energy into this thing. But ultimately, you're not the one steering this ship. And no pun intended. haha ship. But it is the IP holder that kind of determines what's official. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. And that is a rigidly hierarchical relationship between the fan and the IP owner. Yeah, you can never become a boss of the Star Wars universe. There is no, no matter how good it is, there is no way your story about Jar Jar Binks becoming a Jedi will ever become the start, will ever become like the starting block from which other people base their Star Wars stories because everyone else is going to go from canon. We already saw that, I think, in the Star Wars universe. Disney, when it took over, just sort of decided, oh, the, the extended universe isn't canon anymore. And there was a huge, huge, a ton of fans were furious because they loved the extended universe and like the extended universe and all the books got like super weird apparently. And, and it was really fun. And it's just like, nope, doesn't count anymore. Yeah. And I mean, a company 
can sort of just do that, unfortunately, which is just a really weird aspect of intellectual property laws as they exist now. You, you can't kind of, you really can't do that with folklore. You can't say like, oh, Hansel and Gretel, no, the witch lives. I've decided that. I, I the queen of, of Hansel and Gretel, the owner of Hansel and Gretel, decided that the witch lives now and she has a redemption arc. And she becomes a, uh, she opens up her own catering service that sells like vegan cupcakes and it's awesome. Like, nope, I can't make that happen. N- not really any one person can make that happen. Yeah. But if you start telling that, if you start telling that version of Hansel and Gretel and it's compelling and other people start retelling it, you know, the crucial step in folklore, maybe 20 years down the line, that's the version and no one can stop it. No one can say, no, that's really not it. Right. But if Disney somehow found the rights to Hansel and Gretel, they could do it in a second. Yep. So we have this hierarchical relationship between IP holder and fan. And this isn't just a hierarchical relationship. This is specifically a transactional relationship, at least on one side. Like, maybe you, the fan, this franchise is your life. But to the franchise owner, you are a revenue source and that is it. Which I know is incredibly cold. But... Any relationship that they cultivate with you is purely motivated by the desire to wring as much money out of you for as long as possible. I know these companies talk a lot about our relationship with fans and we love our fans, but a lot of this is like warm, fuzzy stuff that they're telling you to make you want to buy stuff and make you want to consistently buy stuff. You know, you develop brand loyalty so that you become a loyal consumer and buy stuff from them for your whole life and that's the entire purpose of these relationships i i I believe that individual creators can have relationships with their fans because you know a creator is an individual human being sure but the when you're entering when you when you put money into the equation shit gets real weird and cold really fast yeah it just does and even if individual people in those corporations actually do actually do care about these art properties, the company overall isn't going to because companies this big operate purely on the logic of ca- of capital. Like they right. they are constrained by existing in the market and having to do and having to compete that they can only yeah. act in the most efficient way. So they are structurally prevented from caring about your favorite show. And if they love you, it's because they have crunched the numbers and decided that you are a good revenue source, that appealing to you is worth the expense, that overall you are profitable. That's real different from an individual creator who, say, decides to write a story because they they want to talk to a group that's underserved, maybe. Like, like an individual queer creative who's writing queer fiction to try to reach other queer people. Disney is not like, if Disney writes strong women, it's not because they have these, this feminist idea that they want to reach strong women and motivate girls. It's just like, okay, we looked at the numbers and this is what's going to sell and this is what we're going to do. And that is it. I cannot stress enough that no matter how much you love the company, they don't love you. They are not your partner. They are not your lover. You are their pay pig. That is all you are to them. Yeah. And that is horrible and cold yeah. and uncomfortable, but that is the fucking reality. And if they decide for whatever reason you and your demographic isn't really like worth financially appealing to, they're going to stop. Yeah. And that's it. The second your wallet's empty, they're gone. Or they find out, oh, here's some other people. Yeah. There's a market that's not saturated. Okay, yeah, let's go get these guys. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like the, re- the reason why there's a little bit more queer representation in mainstream media, there are a few more rich gays than there, than there used to be. Yep. And if that ever stops, it's gone. Yeah. And that's purely it. And I guess you can take that as a success as like, ah, well, that means the gay community is, you know, becoming like a marketable demographic and, and, and is worth the money. But like, this is a fair weather friend. This isn't something that you can count on. Yeah. It's a result of a victory. It's not a victory. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. So I understand why it thinking about that kind of makes a person uncomfortable. But that's the reality. And pretending that this isn't a hierarchy, that there isn't like a legal and financial reality, a material reality to this relationship. I think we delude ourselves into that to avoid thinking like, is it a good idea for me to pour all of my energy into this? 
Is it a good idea of me to pour my entire life and so much time and so much work into this thing that just kind of wants my money, you know? Yeah. I am inclined to say, generally, no, don't pour your life into something that's trying to suck you dry. Uh. Yeah. And I'm, and that's not to say, like, don't enjoy things. Like, it's fine. Fucking watch Star Wars. If you like yeah. Star Wars, it's fine. Like, it's play the video games. The video games are fun. It's cool. Yeah. But just, like, understand what it is. Understand that the stripper doesn't really like you. <laughs> She she's just she's being nice and she's flirting because you got you got money in your pocket and and she wants that money and that is it and you know 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 that and have a fucking great time yeah. but that's all it is the only reason you believe her is because she's good at her job yep <laughs> so that is fandom that is it it's hierarchical it's financial it's material it's transactional and it's not a great way to base your identity yeah and. We've talked about this previously. We talked about this a lot, a lot on the episode with Sloane. But in addition to be to being this transactional hierarchical culture, fandom is also kind of self-infantilizing in a in a very big way. Like to a certain extent, maybe fandom can cultivate your creativity and your imagination, but it does so in the way a gardener cultivates a bonsai tree. It allows very limited growth in a very limited shape. It's not going to really get you that far and in terms of infantilization i i june i think you really really wanted to talk about this a lot yeah so and this ties into like fanfic's place in queer culture because it is true that there are a lot of queer people making and consuming fanfic that's true and it's that's been true for decades and the reason why it's appealing is because when you're just like a little baby queer and you're trying to figure things out, seeing yourself in something is a super important step. Like, I don't want to undersell the impact of that recognition, but that's only one step. And a, a community, kind of like the fanfic community, where things are kind of kept in simple, nice boxes and like there's no real incentive to get messy, is a way that people stay baby queers forever when, because you can just stay online. But actually being queer with other people in real life is where you learn that queerness is really messy and you can't actually divide things super easily into like, this is a box of right things and this is the box of wrong things. But, but you need to learn how to do that to be an adult queer. And we need adult queers because Look, the reason why there's queer stuff is because we've we've won a little bit, but we are not done. <laughs> like, no, like we are still people fighting for our lives, and you're not going. And like, we need adult queers. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about adult queers and um, part of why there's sort of a lack of it. And we're we're gonna get fucking grim for a minute. Uh, we're gonna get really depressing. But there's the very horrible reason why there's a huge lack of adult queers and that's that the queer community is basically kind of rebuilding after an apocalypse and the apocalypse was the 1980s and the epidemic yeah like do you want to know why you don't see you want you want to know why you see like no middle-aged trans women a bunch of them died of aids a, a, a bunch of them still disappeared into living stealth lives because that was the only way that they could actually live as women without being in terrible terrible danger and I am really grateful for everyone who has fought to make it so that's not true. But that took so much that took so much fighting in real life by a lot of people who were very messy and would get canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was won not by like good feelings, but by like throwing bricks at cops. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, like you can't retreat into media, into like living queerness as consuming media that makes you feel good and that you see yourself in because that is a very passive way of existing and we are not at a point where you where we can be that comfortable and just be like oh we're queer and it doesn't matter i can just like sit back and relax no right and being that this kind of fandom is this hierarchical relationship that really is a little bit disempowering in a way because again 
you are at the bottom of this hierarchy, if you start seeing your identity as a fandom, what does that say about your relationship with it? Are, are you subordinate to it? Are you like this passive subordinate thing to it? Or are you like really an active member of your community? Like, I find it very odd that queer people that, sorry, queerness would be compared to a fandom because I don't think that's like a thing for other types of identity. Like, I don't think being Puerto Rican has ever been compared to me to a fandom before. Like, you're just, you just are. And it's not like fandom. It's not, it's not treated like that. It's just, okay, there it is. And it's, and it's real fucking messy and, and loud and, and strange and wonderful, but it's, it's definitely not a fandom. Yeah. Yeah. I, the idea that a quintessential part of queerness is remixing corporate products owned by companies that contribute tons of money to people and organizations that want us dead is so unbelievably grim to me. Like, I, you are not, like, when you are making queer fanfic, you are not, you are not carving out a new place for queerness in media. You are fantasizing about a world in which that was, in which that was true, in which you were representing this media. But it's a fantasy. You're daydreaming. Queerness exists in community with other queer people, like, and specifically embodied with other queer people. Like, I know it's, it's hard for so much of our history, it's been hard to actually find other queer people and actually, like, safely gather. But that's where, that is where, like, actual queerness happens. Right. And you have to be, like, an active member of your community, sort of not like a passive consumer of it. You don't get anywhere from that, and it's, and it's terribly unsatisfying to, to connect to your own self, to your own identity in a passive consumerist way. Yeah, and I think a trend that I have noticed is that it feels like there are, there are two separate queer communities right now, which is the one, the one that is very grounded in the real world, where queer people are actually around each other, and the like online baby queers who are the ones who are the ones like running these countless like harassment campaigns and doing like no kink at pride and just Mm. these unbelievable things. And those two communities have totally different priorities. Like, right. I know just a ton of queers in real life and I don't know a single one who think, who thinks fanfic is important (laughs) <laughs> and, and in fact, I happen to know one very well who was, like, involved in fanfic, like, very deeply a decade ago, and they don't think it's important. <laughs> right. Because everyone, because the queers in fanfic used to believe correctly that this is kind of like, oh, this is like a fun, like, guilty pleasure sort of thing. And that was it. That's fine. Like if you want to, if you want to like write some fanfic that gets you off and then trade it with someone else and it, and it gets them off, that is great. But don't pretend it's something it's not. It's not. It's not queer culture. It's not queer art. Right. And I, I feel like it almost kind of lets the companies off the hook. Like we don't need really substantial uh, representation in our media, you know, because we'll we'll just like write a fanfic of it. Like. Is that really good enough for you? Do you really want to take this thing that doesn't give a fuck about you and decide like, oh, I'll kind of, you know, do this to it and, and so that I can feel better about watching it? Like, maybe you shouldn't be this devoted to something that has so little care for you. Like, there are a lot of queer artists making really exciting, really interesting queer art. And like, what if you supported them? what if you read their books and 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 shit like some there's some really really cool queer writers out there really fucking cool yeah we don't have to settle for oh these two star wars characters are dudes and they have good chemistry and they never like and they the, the most they do is hug right we there are there is so much amazing queer art some of the best art most like transgressive interesting art happening now is queer art yeah you can do better you just have to challenge yourself yeah you don't have to like keep eating table scraps you can like eat an actual fucking meal yeah. <laughs> you can do that like a four course meal 
that's delicious and spicy and awesome. You could just, you don't have to like keep pulling breadcrumbs off the floor and like being like, I'm going to make this into food. But it's so much work to chew. I know. (laughs) Right. Now, something you mentioned, um, there was a a very big distinction between like the internet baby queers and the actual real life queers and like the art or the culture that they, they make or, or engage with. Um, and something I've found a lot with like that sort of queer fan culture is that you are getting representation. You do have queer characters, but it's always in a setting that's like not, not the world. Like it's kind of representation in a vacuum. And I'm wondering, like, what does it mean to have representation in this fake vacuum world? It, like, I'm, I'm drawing it again to, to being to Puerto Rican-ness. Like, what, what would it mean to be Puerto Rican in a fictional world where, like, U.S. colonialism didn't exist and, and, like, there wasn't even really officially a place called Puerto Rico? Like, what would that even mean? I, I don't know. Would it be meaningful to me? Like, would it be meaningful to me to have somebody who is specifically Puerto Rican in Middle Earth? Like, I don't think it would mean anything. I'd just be like, oh, okay, I, yeah, that's like, all right, I guess. Yeah, like if you if you put a if you put like a lesbian like riding a dragon or something, like okay, cool, I'll think it's hot, but <laughs> it's it, yes. it doesn't actually mean anything at all because yeah, because what that's that's showing like oh. That is exhibiting like a lesbian, but it's not telling, it's not telling a queer story because queerness is something that is happening in reality. And I think you can probably, you can tell a queer fantasy story, but it has to, it would have to dig into the, the particular messiness and texture of real queerness. Like you can't tell, mm. you can't put a lesbian, putting a lesbian in like a generic fantasy narrative and doing that that's not a that's not a queer story that's not telling anything interesting about queerness it's not investigating anything it's not there is nothing to learn or discover about queerness in a story like that all you're getting is the very baseline of recognition of hey lesbians are real see ignore the dragon those aren't real (laughs) and like while i think that there is some something of value to that i think it's good to have diversity and representation in fiction um you can go beyond just slotting a diverse character into a pre-existing generic narrative like these narratives are often steeped in colonialism and patriarchy um a lot of these pre-existing narratives come from a rooted from a place that's that is very like kind of heteronormative and um I've said this before on the podcast, but it's not just a word that gives a sentence meaning. It's also the syntax. It's the structure. So these characters you're using, it's almost like this is the word. Word. You're swapping out one word for another word. You're swapping out John for Juan. You're just, But the structure of the story gives so much meaning, and you're not changing the structure. It's still the same old, same old syntax. And this is an issue that affects not just the queer community, it also affects other axes of marginalization, of representation, of identity. Uh, one of our frequent guests, Carlo Yeager Rodriguez, he is he is Puerto Rican, and uh, he writes a lot of stories that are about being uh, Latinx, a lot of stories that are about colonialism. And he said that he has a lot of an easier time selling a generic adventure story where you just switch the main character's name from John to Juan, and that's it. But when he writes these stories that kind of deal with what it kind of means underneath to be Puerto Rican, what it means to live under colonialism, they're a much harder sell, but they're so much more important to me because that's really getting at the heart of it. Like, okay, you could have a hero who's Puerto Rican, but is your hero actually dealing with the reality of what it means to be a colonial subject? Is your hero dealing with what it means to sort of be the subject of this massive empire? Because that's a huge part of what it means to be Puerto Rican. Uh, is your is your hero dealing with the fact that the most powerful empire in the world has been trying for a hundred years to annihilate you, to consume you, to to erase you? Is yeah. your story dealing with that? Yeah, like like with queerness, it's not enough to just be like, oh, yeah fell in love with a woman in a world where that's fine. Like the entire story of queerness 
is shaking off the weight of a society that wants us gone because we are disruptive to its good order. Right, and a lot of these these uh, representations in these stories, the society's order is so similar to ours, and I don't I don't buy that. I don't buy that a world that would be this comfortable with queerness would be so similar to ours because our world is so heavily invested in patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, and queerness kind of disrupts that in a huge yeah. way. Yeah, the practice of queerness is rejecting that order, is rejecting all of these hierarchies that tell us. You know, this is this is the right way to be a woman. This is the right way to be a man. This is the right way to have sex. This is the right way to be in love. All of that is either oppressive or deeply negotiable. And there are no, like there are no, there are very few, sorry, hard and fast rules about what is good and what is bad. As much as people like to pretend that it's easy to define, like a lot of these like online baby queers like to define, okay, this is this is the good way to be gay. This is the bad way to be gay. And that sucks. That's the exact right. thing we don't need. Here's the Matthew too to determine if it is okay, if this age gap and this relationship is acceptable, you know, 100% of the time. Like, you don't know. You don't know, okay? Yeah, yeah like, you know what? It can, it, can be, it can be risky sometimes, but also hooking up with someone more powerful than you. Pretty fun. Super hot. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff there. Do I think do I think it's a good idea for people with a lot of power to use it to press people into having sex with them? No. Of course not. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong for everyone who is less powerful to have sex with everyone who is more powerful. And it's things like that. It's the these sorts of dynamics seem real simple if you are examining them in simple stories where the incentive as a writer is not to challenge audiences Uh, and i think that is that is i think ultimately the incentive that writers get in fanfic communities is they will get the most engagement giving people comfort food right and the practice of queerness in real life is making people uncomfortable because you can't eradicate all of like all of this fake order without making people deeply uncomfortable and without being uncomfortable yourself and coming up against ideas that really upset you and figuring out where they fit into your life. Right, right. I mean, a certain amount, obviously a certain amount of escapism and comfort food I think is healthy just because, you know, we all have our comfort foods. We all have the thing we go to when it's like today has been too much. But all the time, you know, you need to eat your vegetables sometimes, man. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like I, I will watch junk. I will read junk stories, but I'm not going to pretend that they're something that they're not. And I'm not going to pretend that if someone calls them junk, that it's queer phobic, because not everything that not everything that queer people do can be above criticism. Like just because a bunch of queer people do something does not make hating it queer phobic. Right. If he, because when you say that hating fanfic is queerphobic, you are saying that it is quintessential to queerness. And that's not a queerness that I recognize. Something I'm going to point out, too, is that a heck of a whole lot of fanfic, a heck of a whole lot of, like, slashfic is written by and for straight women. Which, oh, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Like, that's totally fine. You, you get off to the idea of two dudes, you know, going at it. Cool. Have fun. Have a great time. But, like, don't pretend that you're being an ally, like, just just because you're giving yourself something to masturbate to. Like, when an average, you know, basic straight boy watches girl-on-girl porn, he's not being an ally to the lesbian community. <laughs> he's just getting off. And that's fine. There's, you know, have fun. Yeah. Jerk off. Go ahead. That's great. But, like, I'm not going to pat you on the head for it. <laughs> and... If you're literally fetishizing someone, I, I don't think that's really so much queer ally stuff either. I mean, a, a whole heck of a whole lot of that slash fanfic too is is sort of fetishizing gay men and, and presenting gay men in this oddly heteronormative way in terms of like, well, which one which one's the top and which one's the bottom? Which you're basically asking the old fashioned like, who's which is the man of the relationship and which is the woman? You know, when yeah. you kind of get into that mode. 
And that's, that's not really helpful. That's not really that progressive. That's just, you're entertaining yourself with someone else's identity. Yeah. But I mean, okay, but isn't lesbian porn written with straight men as the audience mind? Isn't that representation? We are in, there are so many lesbians in media. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all you need. You don't need like movies about lesbians or anything because there's porn. That's yeah. fine. There's Angela and Strawberry, and that is enough. Yeah, like you no, know, no, you know what? We we did we didn't need a portrait of a lady on fire. No, no, no. Oh no. Like because we 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 already we had, didn't like, need the handmaiden. Yeah, we we already had so much. We already had so we already had a bunch of lesbian porn. So lesbianism is fully represented. <laughs> uh, we don't need Emily Dickinson. Fuck you, Emily Dickinson. Sappho, you're a bummer. You're yeah. grim, dark Sappho. We don't need your yeah. shit. Oh, oh, Sappho. Oh, Sappho, the best. God love her. <laughs> They're just this perfect goth girl singing, strumming sad songs at the edge of a cliff. Ugh, like the best. We're we're all we we are all trying to just recapture that that magic, and none of us can. Yeah. She was just the ultimate goth girlfriend. Underappreciated, I think. Absolutely. Terribly underappreciated. Absolutely. Ancient Greece, you didn't know what you had. No. Really missed <laughs> out. Uh. All right. So speaking of Sappho and Emily Dickinson, let's talk a little bit about the lineage of queer culture and queer arts. Instead of taking stuff that's made by and for heterosexual audiences, by very cishet companies designed to give cishet CEOs money that they can give to horrible cishet conservative politicians that they use to, to terribly hurt the queer community, let's talk about the importance of the lineage of queer culture and queer art and I've mentioned this before, this sort of apocalypse, but I do think that a huge problem that's kind of facing the younger generation, well, younger, I mean like millennials now, is that so much of the older generation and all of these voices and this lineage and this continuity was fucking stolen by the AIDS epidemic. And I want to stress for anyone no younger, whatever you were taught about the AIDS epidemic in school, like this wasn't just a thing that sort of happened. This was something that was... I think deliberately made worse by a government very, very hostile to the queer community. Like, do not, make no mistake, the Reagan government knew it was killing as many people as they did, and they loved it. They welcomed yeah. that. Yeah. Like, Reagan spokesmen would laugh openly at re reporters when a reporter asked in a big press conference, like, hey, are you guys going to do anything about this whole AIDS thing that's happening? It looks it looks pretty bad. This whole thing's starting. This is when the epidemic was kind of starting in, in, in its first couple of years. The spokesman openly laughed in the reporter's face. Yeah. Zero exaggeration. It's the most, like, fucking inhuman thing ever. So a lot of this previous generation of queer writers, artists, musicians, and audiences, and just like elders to who would provide this lineage is fucking gone. They were murdered by government policy. And I mean, if you're straight, like you have a lineage to follow. If you're straight, you, you have an example to follow your parents, your friends' parents, generally, like you know how to be straight because everything is teaching you how to be straight. But like, if you're queer, you kind of are lacking these elders to kind of lead you to it and and sort of raise you or or I or or sort of show you the way because like so many of them were fucking murdered. Yeah, it's it's hard to overstate how dramatic it was and the kind of impact that it's still having on our communities now. Uh, yeah, like there's, I mean, yeah, like I I know no. Okay, I know, I know a few older trans women. Many of them are ones who came out late in life. I don't know anyone who was out like 20 years ago. Yeah. It's not an option. And I, I wish I did. I wish I knew what it was like to live a long and trans life. And I'm, right. I'm excited to find out on my own, but I wish I didn't. I wish I could ask someone, hey, what is this like? How does it feel? What What did you do? Do you have any advice? But that it doesn't exist, and we, ha and so we're kind of we're starting from scratch in some ways. And part of doing that is building, is creating our own art that really yeah. digs into the complexities of 
being alive and being queer just so we have we have this material to use and give other people and to maintain that continuity right and i think another part too is a little bit of archaeology i guess going back and looking at the art of previous generations of of queer uh creators and some of that was hidden but some of it isn't i mean you, ha- you have to hunt for it it's not going to be handed to you or or a lot of times if it is handed to you it will be presented to you in a way that like kind of sucks the queerness out of it like when they teach you about emily dickinson in school they don't mention that she was a lesbian yeah they don't they just talk oh she was a recluse she just didn't go out much and then you found out she wrote these beautiful love letters to women yeah or henry james you just kind of think of him as like oh he was this very uh, solitary man and then you found out he wrote like these beautiful love letters to handsome young men just adoring love letters oh that, my that, God. that uh just fucking gorgeous letters that uh, uh herman melville Herman Melville, thank you so much. How did I not remember that Herman Melville wrote love letters? He wrote these beautiful love letters. Oh, my God. And Moby Dick is so gay. It's It's incredibly gay. It's such a beautiful queer book. Immensely. I mean, he kind of, like, gets married to Queequeg in the first 13 chapters, and it's all... Hi, it's a story about, like, men who don't fit into ordinary, polite society, kind of finding each other in this place outside of the normal world, pursuing this wonderful, terrifying, sublime thing that might kill them. Like, that's pretty fucking queer, man. Yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> it, it's incredible. And, and, like, I think an important thing that reading queer art like that teaches you is the ways that que- that these specific like boundaries of queerness are really really malleable. Uh, for example, there's a movie called Funeral Parade of Roses, uh, which oh wow I watched recently, and it's about it's about Jap- it's set, it's a retelling of Oedipus Rex set in like Japan's like gay drag culture in the '60s, and the main character is a gay man, an identified gay man but who like dresses and lives and passes as a woman in what this culture like called queens. And that is a, that's a gender position that is 100% not analogous to anything we have in our like current gender discourse. And it's fascinating because it's a way like it's a different, it's just a, like it's a different way of like people who are assigned male engaging with femininity and it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see the various ways that people have been queer and found ways to like live as themselves without, you know, following any like set rules. Like, cause there's not actually right. one right way to be trans. Right. And everyone who's telling you that is trying to hurt someone, <laughs> <laughs> but you can't get that messiness. If you are writing to an audience that wants things in comfortable little boxes, you need, right to be willing to like dig deep and get your hands really dirty and tangle with some really ugly and unpleasant things that might hurt you and might hurt the people who are reading your story. And that's okay. Mm. Part, of in, part of like investigating yourself is getting hurt. Um, part of being in community with other people is other people will hurt you and you will hurt other people. And that's just how it is. And while I understand the the desire to seek comfort, especially during stressful times, I I really feel like you kind of owe it to your to your elders, to the people who came before you and worked so hard to make things safe for you, to like look for their work. Like I I, I just think of all the artists who are trying to make art in the 1980s while they were literally dying, like these there 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 was this gay photographer who was blind because of aids and still kept working as a photographer like these people who were just trying to create art in the midst of an apocalypse trying to be heard and i think you owe it to them to listen i i I think you owe it to them to listen to what they had to say and not throw it out just because it might be a little more depressing than watching batman suck superman's dick like (laughs) They really, they, they put their lives on the line to get their voices out, and we, we owe them to listen. And, and you don't have to stop watching Batman suck Superman's dick. <laughs> like, that's, 
That's fine, but I think it's important to contextualize it for what it is. It's comfort food, it's getting off, it's not high art. And it's because right. our actual high art is the stuff that actually challenges us. Right. And think of what, what mark you want to make on the culture. If you write, I don't know, like Harry, Ron, Slash, it's never going to make as big an impact on the culture as J.K. Rowling has made, ugh, unfortunately. But if you write your own queer story that's not like a fan work, but its own original thing, and it hits people, like, guess what? You've, you've made an impact on the culture that can't be taken away from you. You've made your own impact. You've, you've written your own name on something and made it special and made it different and unique. Yeah. And there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. Do the, do the queer thing and get out from under the thumb of people more powerful than you. That's what it's always been. That's right. I mean, I guess a lot of what it comes down to is, do you want to assimilate or do you want to radically change society from from the bottom up? Yeah. And I, you are not, you clearly are not an assimilationist. No. Um, <laughs> because ultimately, because the number, the number of us who can assimilate is so small. Like, yeah. Pete Buttigieg can assimilate. Awesome. Like a like a rich cis gay man can assimilate and he'll be fine. Some of us can't. Like Right. And every and by assimilating, you are saying to everyone who can't like can't pass as a trans person who doesn't want to who doesn't want to like just get like get married but to a gay partner and raise two kids in the suburbs. You're telling everyone who like has really unconventional ideas about what they want their sexual and romantic lives to look like or what they want their gender to look like that they can't come with you. And everyone who wants to assimilate into the society that is still going to keep oppressing most of us is betraying us. Damn. You are not fucking around today. Nope. <laughs> you did not come to make friends. I... Why would I? Why would I log on to make friends? <laughs> you came here to win. If if I want to make <laughs> right. friends, I will step away from my computer. No, yeah, yeah, that's definitely that is good advice in in I guess in non COVID times. But fair. Step away from the computer and find community with people who really actually exist in the real world. Because writing about people drinking lattes in a fictional coffee shop is not the same thing. As building an actual community. Yeah, like no amount of fantasizing about a world where being queer is easy and soft and comfortable will actually make it happen. And not to mention, like, maybe things are pretty good now, but the pendulum can swing the other way fast. Oh, yeah. It it can go back hard. Like, um, And uh, it, it's fucking miserable and unfair, but, like, you got to be fucking ready for that. Yeah, like, the, 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 best, the best years to be trans in the United States weren't the last few years like it, th that pendulum already swung back a little bit mm. not even to not to mention what it's like being trans in the uk can you imagine oh god like I, I i can't go there and be like oh no don't worry things are getting better they're not they're getting worse yeah weimar germany in the 1930s or early 1930s and the 1920s was like immense progress for for the queer community tons of research on transgender me medicine and and on hormone treatment and and like real a much much more open attitude toward homosexuality and then well we all know what fucking happened yeah. after that the, the nazis burned all those notes it was all gone yeah yeah and then the history books that you read tell you that the nazis burned books but they don't tell you that what was in the books was research on queer sexuality and yeah. research on trans medicine so yeah there's you even after that we're still fucking censoring the content of those books yeah and they they also don't tell you that when the allies came and liberated the camps they left the gays they left the gays <sighs> in the camps they made sure that the gays stayed imprisoned <sighs> so yeah a world is possible where all queers can sit comfortably in a coffee shop and have a like long developing crush on the barista, but we can't. And you can do that now. You can go and do that, but you 
that can't be it. We, we need to, we can't get comfortable yet because there's still so much fighting to do. Right. And I think for everyone who feels like they have made it and wants to, and thinks that they can stop fighting, I implore them to think about who they're leaving behind if they stop. Yeah. All right. Well, that is, I think that's a good final word, but is there anything else you want to add to, uh, to this episode? Uh, I think I got out my general thoughts on this topic. Yes. I'm sure I'll think of something in like 10 minutes. It's like, oh, I wish I said that, but no. Go, God damn it. (laughs) I forgot to mention this one thing. Yeah. That's always the way. Yeah. Always, always, always the way. Ugh. Okay. But, um, before we before we close, June, where can our listeners find and support your work? I know you have a Lizetomania out, and it's fucking great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so my Twitter account is at I'm June Facts. I just released a short story called Listomania, which is about a woman who is beguiled by a traveling pianist, along with all of the other women in the audience, and the terrible consequences that follow from that fact. Um, yeah, it's it's a story about fandom, actually, funny enough. Yeah, which is, yeah. Really a, intense fandom. <laughs> a complete coincidence since I wrote it in May. Um, wow, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it is a, it is an eternal topic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Listomania, I, I guess that's how you pronounce it. I mispronounced it because I, I don't know how to pronounce that word. But yeah. Listomania is really good and you should check it out. Yeah. You should buy it. Yeah. It's good. And you can find my other work or links to my other work at my website, which is theworldsgreatestwriter.com. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> An appropriately humble name. That's me. <laughs> well, it's perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Anytime you want to come on, let me know, because that was awesome. And thank you, audience, for listening. That's all for this episode. Be sure to join us next time when we talk about letting go of the romantic myth of writing as an identity. Until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>